Greetings in the Master's name. Hey, you can open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews. Uh, we're ready for chapter 7, but it's been a while, and I'd like to review some. So we'll begin with uh, at, the be- at the beginning of the book. Uh, I wanted to say about Wednesday evening, starting a book study of James. And so I plan to uh, lead the discussion Wednesday evening uh, for the first chapter. And then uh, after that, be asking different of the brothers to lead the other chapters. I suppose our next study won't be till April because first Wednesday of March is uh, during our our um, revival meetings. But just a little bit what the plans are for that. Okay, the book of Hebrews is interesting in that uh, it's different in that the writer is not given. Of course, God is the author of all the books, uh, inspired all the scriptures, but most of the books, you know, the writers identified, and this one just starts out God. And uh, it it's so um, meaningful to me. And the first verse talks about how God spoke in various ways at various times, in the Old Testament by the prophets. But here in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So we have those words, God hath spoken. And when you are exposed to a lot of man's thinking and philosophies and so on, and to realize that we have a word from God. Now, uh, did anybody here ever get a, a letter from the president? I, I didn't hardly think so. Um, I, a number, quite a number of years ago, I think the president's office was was sending a birthday card to people that were a hundred years old, and I don't know if the president's office is still doing that or not. But, and I don't know how many people that got it saved it, you know. But it it'd be kind of uh, unusual or outstanding, you know. But this this letter we have from God, God has spoken, and how amazing that is. I mean, the 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 uh, the creator of the universe, and he's the controller, the sustainer, uh, up, and we have this personal God. And he's written to us. And, of course, in him are had all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so man searches. Like, okay, so uh, my, my, my little flip phone, I think I could go online and probably find a manual for it that's 50 pages. It tells you all the intricacies of this thing. And I remember seeing Microsoft manuals, you know, tell you how Microsoft Office functions, and it didn't tell you everything, but they were about that thick. Well, this book tells us everything about ourselves. It tells us how we work. It, it suspects. It, it, it just, uh, I mean, man searches for answers, how things work, not not so much in a physical, mechanical way. He does that too. But 
yeah, um, in 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 the spiritual sense, in in that level, you know, man searches for answers, and and we we have them, we have them. It's just it's just um, what's the word? Um, it's just fantastic that God has written to us. God God has spoken. And I've said, you've heard me say this, or old people, they start repeating all their stories, you know. But uh, years ago, and I think it's still going on, but it used to be funded by the government. Now I think it's private funded, but it's CTI, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. You know, and there's billions of dollars being spent to see if there's somebody out there talking to us. And I, when, when I first learned about that, I thought, you know, it's it's interesting. There is somebody out there talking to us. But you don't have to spend billions of dollars to find it. It's right here. And, of course, he's speaking to us by his Holy Spirit now, too. So all these things, man searches. Uh, I mean, you know, the basic questions in philosophy. Where did I come from? Why am I here? You know, what's the purpose and meaning of life? And like I say, the specs. God gives us all the specs. He gives us all the answers. He's written to us. This 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 almighty, awesome God, but he's a personal God. Uh, and we can have fellowship with him, but God has spoken. That is tremendous. And I was thinking about, you know, man, a few people, not too many percentage-wise, but a few people, they think they convince themselves that, that uh, when it's all said and done, they just die like a dog and that's it. But you really have to try hard to come to that conclusion. And that thinking about all that, uh, just just yesterday, uh, Jonathan Lee sent out something to the ministry just to share that he had ran across in Ruth Hobbs' writings, um, just something that was never published or anything, but just gone through her papers. And I thought it was, it, it made me think about this, where people actually come to a conclusion like that. Uh, how it works. I thought this applied. It was um, five easy steps down the stairway of deception. A man starts down these steps when he, and she has five steps. One, loves not the truth. When he loves not the truth, he, two, obeys not the truth. After prolonged disobedience, he gets to where he, three, believes not the truth. Unbelief of what he knows soon confuses him to the point where he foreknows not the truth. Obviously, when Satan has got him to this mixed up place, it is child's play to get him to where he believes a lie. Five steps to deception. So, well, anyway, God has spoken. And uh, and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation of God. And so it says, Hath in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So there's the answer to that. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of God. Uh, Jesus is the express image of God. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. When he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the man. And there's the answer to the sin problem. He's purged our sins, and he's set down. It's finished. The work is finished. And so these, 
I don't know how much I don't know how much we grapple with these things. But in general, mankind does. What is the answer to the sin problem? All of the all of the religions around the world, that's what they're grappling for. That's what they're trying to find an answer to. That's what they're trying to solve. What how do you address the sin problem? What's the answer to the sin problem? Jesus Christ has purged our sins. That is the answer. And to too much of an extent, it's just ho-hum to us. It's, it's, uh, it's unfathomable what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. Um, well, the, uh, and, uh, a little bit later here, I'll, I'll read what somebody else wrote about as sort of summarizing in the book of Hebrews. But uh, here in the first chapter, then, we have that Jesus is superior to the angels. Then we move into chapter 2, and first part of chapter 2 is a warning. Uh, all this that God has provided, all this salvation that God has provided, all that God has done for us, the, the, um, the danger, the great danger of neglecting that. And that is not that far away. I mean, we know, we probably all know people that have drifted away and neglected that salvation for various reasons. Um, I think of a relative that, nice fellow, I like him, one year older than me, and um, he and his wife had good jobs. They're retired now. And uh, they, uh, they've done a lot of travel. And, and um, my, um, one of my aunts said one time at that point they were in India. And she said they're over there trying to find God. Well, he grew up with God. There might be some reasons why he drifted away. Um, maybe some hypocrisy and insincerity in the settings he was in. But the, the, the great danger of neglecting this salvation. Well, then we have in this chapter where Jesus became a man in verses 14 and 15. And I, I know I've said this several times, but um, a teacher one time said that we ought to know Hebrews 2, 14, and 15 as well as we know John 3, 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. A lot of, a lot of people and a lot of settings fear death fear death and when as we get older and death is um there are there are believers who kind of hesitate or wonder or 
a little bit shaky about approaching death because it's kind of unknown. But there are other believers who it's 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 a joyous thing, and I don't know that one is is uh, less acceptable to God than the other. But it's uh, it for the unbeliever, for many unbelievers, it's a very fearful thing to to come up to the point of death. But but Jesus has taken away that. He's he's. He's delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to death. But it's, and it also says he's destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and to be freed, to be freed from the bondage and the power of Satan is something else. Um, to be a child of God and to be under that umbrella of, of power and protection, and maybe this doesn't really apply, but... Um, I, Many years ago, when I was teaching in, in our whatever we were studying, I, I told my students, I said, I wouldn't be, if, if the God called me to it, I would not be afraid to live in a haunted house. And there are haunted houses, if you, in case you didn't believe there are. But uh, because the power of God is greater than the power of Satan. And so have we, have we availed ourselves of that power? When, when, when God, or when Satan tempts us, Christ is more powerful. At do, do we run there? If you've never read, and here again, I know I like to read better than some of you all, but the allegory, Palace Beautiful, it's not a real long read, uh, but it, 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 it's an allegory. And it shows how the keeper of the palace, which is the keeper of your own self, yourself is the palace and how he let the black dwarf get power he fed the black dwarf and it got power and then finally he called for help and that helped him overcome the black dwarf but so we this we we have this we have this power available to us um i uh i read uh, jesus became a man and was not able to, and, and was thus able to die and rise again, conquering Satan and delivering us from Satan's bondage and power. And someone said it this way: In the creation, the Lord made man like Himself, but in the redemption, He made Himself like man. He had to become a man so He could die. Well, that's that's a powerful, wonderful truth there in chapter two. Moving into chapter three. Uh, it shows it, that uh, Christ is superior to Moses. And uh, again, there's a warning about uh, falling away, failing to obtain this rest that God offers us. And they failed to obtain it because they lacked confidence in God. And in lacking confidence in what God said, that led to disobedience. Uh, and then chapter 4 continues with that, but then chapter 4 ends with this, this is it's where it kind of introduces the, the, uh, the core theme of the book of Hebrews, Jesus the great high priest. And so it says we can come boldly and find mercy and help in time of need. And it uses the word grace twice in verse 16. And uh, Strong's Concordance gives this for a part of the meaning of grace, the word, the uh, Greek word there, uh, charis, the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. Uh, I would, I'd like to read um, from uh, 
what one person uh, was talking here about the uh, the book of Hebrews, and and I, I kind of mentioned that when we started how okay, this is the book of Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews were Jews, Hebrews, but this was addressed to Christians, so it was Jewish Christians, and in that early first century, and so they had left. They had left the Jewish way to adopt Christ. And so the people who stayed Jews, you know, could look at them and say, look what we still have. We have the temple. We have the priest. We have all this ceremony. We, we have all this. And what do you have? Well, their answer was that they have Christ. That's what the writer was telling them. You have Christ. And so this is uh, what uh, McDonald said. The, the, the Jewish relatives or whatever would say, we have the tabernacle. We have the priesthood. We have the offerings. We have the ceremonies. We have the temple. We have the beautiful priestly garments. The believer's confident answer is, yes, you have the shadows but we have the substance. You have the types, but we have the fulfillment. You have the ceremonies, but we have Christ. You have the picture, but we have the person. And our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. No other high priest ever sat down in recognition of a finished work and never ever held such a place of honor and of power. We have such a high priest, and that's in chapter 8. The theme of the book, the high priestly work of Christ, the preeminence of the Son of God, the superiority of Christ and therefore of Christianity. Hebrews shows Christ as fully God in chapter 1 and at the same time fully man in chapter 2, able to represent his people as their high priest before God the Father. The letter, we shall find, okay, we shall find in Christ Jesus everything we need for a life of joy and strength and final victory. And that is, I guess, what I would give out as a challenge, an encouragement, a desire for each one of us here that we would find in Christ Jesus everything we need for a life of joy and strength in victory. Is my life a life of joy and strength and victory? Well, it says at the end of chapter 4, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are temptations. There are disappointments our discouragements. People let us down. Are we finding in Christ a life of joy and strength and victory? I, I so much desire that for us. Our one need, and this again is this, writer McDonald, our one need is to know Jesus better. You know, Paul said that I may know him. 
So is that a pursuit? Is that a passion we have to know Jesus better? What, what, what are we pursuing in life? Well, in chapter 5, uh, it gives characteristics of a priest. Uh, human sympathy and divine appointment are two requisites for a priest. And, uh, and, and so in verses 1 and 4, it, it, both of those verses talk about the, the priest uh, being a person chosen by God. And in verse 1, we see that the priest represented men to God. He offered gifts and sacrifices on behalf of men. Verse 2, he's compassionate in his ministry. Uh, a priest represents God to men and represents men to God. And so then, uh, so he starts talking about this priesthood. But then before he goes on, See, seven is starting to get into the meat of the epistle. But before he gets there, he says in verses 11 to 14, he says, you're not ready to handle this. Y'all been, been slothful in your, in your Christian life. And uh, it's going to be hard for you to understand this. But then he does kind of, shift a little bit in chapter 6 and says, and he kind of gives them encouragement. And so he kind of ends up with chapter 6 and then moves on into chapter 7. Um, but chapter 6, the end of chapter 5, chapter 6, the danger of carelessness, the danger of carelessness. But then in chapter 6, he ends up with which hope, the hope we have in Christ as an anchor of the soul, you know an anchor. You know how an anchor is shaped. You know, kind of like that. I think. Of course, I don't didn't look it up, but I'm, probably there's more than just those simple ones. But they're shaped that way so they can grab hold of the seafloor. They can grab hold of something. It doesn't move, and then the ship doesn't move either. At least it doesn't move very far. And so are our lives that way? Are what are we grabbing hold of in life? You know, are we? Are we anchored to something that's going to keep us from drifting, from wrecking, from getting smashed and then destroyed like a ship that's just loose? What are we anchored to? And so he, he, he points out at the end of chapter 5 that if a person is careless about their Christian life, and they don't exercise spiritual disciplines that result in strength. They, they, they miss the security and stability and the joy and the blessing of being anchored in what God offers. So then in chapter 7, uh, we, uh, we pick up the discussion of the priesthood of Christ, which is the major theme of the book, one of the major themes. So uh, maybe, let's see, um, maybe I will read this chapter. We won't. Maybe necessarily get through the whole thing, but let's read chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter. By the way, I'm going to read this chapter, and I want to read a couple other uh, verses in the Old Testament, and then I'm going to ask you some questions, give you a quiz. Um, 
priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abide of the priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the coming, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh a son who is consecrated forevermore. Now what's that all about? Uh, maybe to us it seems kind of abstract. Uh, to the Jewish believers, the Hebrews, it meant a lot. Let's go back to... Uh, Genesis 14, Genesis 14, read, uh, we want to look at verses 18 to 20. This is where we have what this chapter was referring back to. Abraham had gone out, a lot had been captured, you know, and Abraham went and rescued him and won the battle. And um, so on the way back, 
Melchizedek met him. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered thine enemies unto thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Okay, questions. Who was Melchizedek? Okay, King of Salem. And it didn't say it here, but it said it in Hebrews, also King of Okay, Salem. Okay, Salem means peace. Yeah, King of Salem, which is peace. But then there was another one in Hebrews, King of righteousness. righteousness. Okay, and it's interesting. There is no peace without righteousness. In fact, uh, which verse? Uh, there's a verse somewhere. Oh, it's Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy and Holy Ghost. Anyway, so he was King of righteousness, and his name Melchizedek. That means king of righteousness. And then Pete, and then he was from Salem. And I, most, the general feeling is that that was Jerusalem. Um, but uh, so king of Salem, king of peace, king of right. And okay, so what else was he? Okay, priest. Now what's, what's unique about that? He was king of righteous, king of righteousness, king of peace, and priest of the Most High God. Pardon? Okay, that's right. That's that's more more about him, right? Uh, but I, I'm thinking about this thing that he was king and he was priest. Now I didn't I. I was I didn't just analyze every single one, but I don't think there was anybody, any man in the Old Testament that was both a king and a priest. Now some of them were priest and prophet, but I couldn't think of any that was considered a king and a priest. The priests all came from the line of Levi. In fact, descendants of Aaron. But anyway, but he was king and priest. And of course, Jesus is king and priest also. So Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Okay, and then, so then um, uh, Jason, some more things we know about um, Melchizedek. Okay, so it says no father, no mother, no um, no beginning, no ending. So what do you make of all that? Well, some people, people try to figure out who Melchizedek was. <laughs> and some think he was Seth, uh, Noah's son. Uh, that's, I don't really think that myself and some think he was the pre-incarnate christ uh and i don't think that either because what does what did it say it says something uh 
in, in Hebrews, it says, made like unto the Son of God. It says, without father, without mother, without descent, and that means without genealogy, having neither beginning of the, the... The thing of it is, Melchizedek just shows up. And that's all we know about him. That's what I make out of it. But in in that, it, the, the scripture then makes a parallel to Christ. He had no beginning. He had no ending. So a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the scripture makes... Uh, a lot out of that comparison for a reason for the Jew. The Jew could know about Melchizedek and in saying Christ was a priest like Melchizedek, that that did something in their thinking that helped them to see what the writer was getting at. Okay, there's a couple other things about Melchizedek. Um, what else do we see in this passage about Melchizedek? and Abraham and their relationship. Pardon? Yeah, that was interesting. He, I had never just really focused on that or noticed that before, just, just this week. I noticed he brought bread and wine. That I just had never stood out to me before. I mean, you know, Jesus... The communion service, when he instituted it, was bread and wine. That was interesting. Okay, what's some other things? What, 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 what the, dy the dynamics here? What's some other things? He brought bread and wine, and what else did he do for Abraham? Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes. What did Melchizedek give Abraham? Well, he brought bread and wine, but what else did he do? Okay, he blessed him. And the point there was, okay, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And to them, you know, they told Jesus, Abraham is our father, you know, But Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The greater blesses the lesser. And then Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And then what we read in, in chapter 7, and it goes on into, it, it goes to considerable length to talk about that, that the Levites took tithes of the other people. The other people paid tithes to Levi, but here Levi is a descendant of Abraham. It says in a sense he was paying tithes to Melchizedek. So again, showing how great Melchizedek was or the, the place he had. Now there's one other verse I want to look at and then back to chapter 7 a little bit. Psalm 110, I think it's Psalm 110. Let's turn there. Yes, it is. It's Psalm 110 and verse 4. 
The Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I um, I don't know if I have it written down or not. It was in Matthew 22. I don't... Uh, where Matthew 22, Jesus refers back to this psalm. And, and so this was recognized as a messianic psalm. And so here we have... Uh, well, see, Jesus referred back to this when, uh, well, maybe I should turn to that and just uh, get the uh, the meaning, the, why I'm saying what I'm saying. Matthew 22, 41 to 45 is where it is. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then did David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he's referring back to this, and he's quoting the psalm, the first verse, and so and referring to himself. And so, and then in verse four we have the hour to priest forever after the Lord of Melchizedek. And this is there's something interesting here. You have this incident of Abraham and Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, you have this reference, just this one verse about Melchizedek there in Psalm 110. That's a thousand years later. And then you have the reference in Hebrews, which is another thousand years later. And you talk about the scripture being inspired and tied together. One reference, one little reference here. In, in Genesis 14, a thousand years later, one little reference. A thousand years after that, another reference. It's all tied together. It's amazing. Okay, let's um, let's go back to chapter 7 now in Hebrews. Uh, one little thing about that incident there with Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek said... Uh, Blessed be thou, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And then the verses after that, the uh, the other king says, uh, you can keep all the spoil, just let me have my people back. And Abraham says, I'm not going to take a thread of your stuff. And um, I should go back to that. It's very, it's, it's kind of interesting. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from thee a thread even to a shoelace. So Melchizedek, did Melchizedek place a little truth in his mind? God is the possessor of everything, possessor of heaven and earth. And so Abraham, oh, this stuff all belongs to God. I'm not going to keep it for myself. I'm not going to let you... Um, well, he said, I don't want you saying he, to the king of Sodom, he said, I don't want you saying that you made me rich. But anyway, he, he, he says exactly what Melchizedek said to him. Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth. So just maybe Melchizedek helped him think there too. Okay, so here in chapter 7, See, their religion, their whole religion, the whole Jewish religion, the temple, the sacrifices, the whole system, the whole Testament covenant, the whole way they took care of sin. Well, they didn't actually take care of sin. They just covered it. They postponed it. 
they had this method that show man how how sinful he was, and here's you make these sacrifices, okay? And you go to other places in the world, and they make these. They may they have their sacrifices. They do they they do, and then they have their idols, you know, and they make their gifts to the idols and so on, trying trying to do something to take care of the sin problem, and. And the writer of the Hebrews is pointing out to them how, how much greater Christ is than all that. The, you see, the whole priesthood system through Aaron, they became priests because of their genealogy. They became priests because of their earthly, fleshly position. In other words, their, that they were born in this family line. And and they and like I say, they were all from the tribe of Levi. And so the writer's pointing out Christ was after this other priest that we find in the Old Testament, even before Mount Sinai, even before they became a nation, there was this priest that just showed up. And he wasn't Aaron's line. He, you know, for, for all we know, we don't know anything about him. He was just no father, no mother, no genealogy, whatever. But he was a priest. And so Christ is a priest in that line. He's not from Aaron's line. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so on. So he's showing that he's superior. There had to be something better. The Old Testament system, it had its place. But it wasn't good enough. It was good enough for the time being. But it wasn't. It didn't have the final answer. didn't have the final solution. So he's leading up to all that. And so it says in verse 11, if therefore perfection or completeness, that is, were by the Levitical priesthood, what there wouldn't be a need for anything else different. But since it wasn't, there needs to be something different. Uh, the priesthood being changed, there's made a necessity of change also of the law. So the whole system is being changed. And so we get the New Testament, we get the New Covenant. And I think I'm going to um, conclude here a little bit pretty soon with uh, the thoughts in verses. Uh, well, 16 is to me a very powerful truth that this priest is talking about Jesus Christ who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. In other words, they're, they became priests because they were descendants of Aaron. But Christ was a priest after the power of an In other words, that was the Old Testament limitations. The New Testament, the power of an endless life. The Old Testament priests, they came on the scene, they died, you get another and he dies and so on. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God forever. He sat down, his work is finished as far as redemption work. His work goes on as far as intercessing for, inter, being an interceder for, but it's after the power of an endless life. And that, that's kind of what I was referring to earlier the power that's available to us, do we, how tapped in are we to that power, that power of an endless life? 
And I'm going to um, read something here from Andrew Murray. In the opening verses of our epistle, we find the work of Christ divided into two parts. When he had effected the cleansing of sins, that was after the order of Aaron, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, that was after the order of Melchizedek. There are too many Christians who see in Christ only the fulfillment of what Aaron typified. Christ's death and blood are very precious to them. They do seek to rest their faith upon them, and yet they wonder that they have so little of the peace and joy of the purity and power which the Savior gives and which faith in him ought to bring. The reason is simple, because Christ is only their Aaron, not their Melchizedek. They do indeed believe that he has ascended to heaven and sets upon the throne of God, but they have not seen the direct connection of this with their daily spiritual life. They do not count upon Jesus working in them in the power of the heavenly life and imparting it to them. They do not know their heavenly calling with the all-sufficient provision for its fulfillment in them secured in the heavenly life of their priest-king. And I know reading something is a good way to bore people. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of um, foundational truth here, but it, talking about people not having the power of Christ in their life, they do not know their heavenly calling with the all-sufficient provision for its fulfillment in them, secured in the heavenly life of their priest-king. And as a consequence of this, they do not see the need for giving up the world to have their life and walk in heaven. Because they don't know or haven't experienced that in-depth connection to Christ, their priest-king. As a consequence of this, they do not see the need for giving up the world to have their life and walk in heaven. The work of redemption was accomplished on earth in weakness. It is communicated from heaven in resurrection and ascension power. The cross proclaims the pardon of sin. The throne gives the power over sin. So, in Christ is power flowing from a life that cannot end. And again, I just desire that we all find that peace and joy and strength and power and victory that's available to us in Jesus Christ.